Welcome to the CRISPR revolution. This is CRISPR Cuts, a podcast dedicated to the world of genome engineering. Take a break and join us as we guide conversations with an expert CRISPR cast about this cutting edge science. Hi everyone, welcome to CRISPR Cuts. This is Minu. Hi, this is Kevin. And uh, today we have with us uh, Trevor Martin. He's the CEO and co-founder of Mammoth Biosciences. Hi, Trevor. Hey. So could you start by telling us about your background and how you ended up co-founding Mammoth? Yeah, so, well, I don't know how far my background here I go, but originally I'm from Georgia, and in Georgia for the first 18 years of my life, and first got interested in uh, kind of science actually in college over at Princeton. Uh, they had a really cool program there called Integrated Science, where they kind of combined all the disciplines together, like math, physics, chemistry, biology, really with a focus on biology. And I really kind of fell in love with that idea of kind of cross-disciplinary work. And that really set things up for when I went over to grad school at Stanford and started working in actually computational biology there and really looking at stuff like EQTLs and that kind of analysis. But toward the end of my graduate school, I got very interested in kind of the emerging technologies for diagnostics and really kind of saw diagnostics as a field that there's a lot of opportunities for really core innovation because uh, a lot of the techniques used in the field are, have been very similar for a very long time. And that's because there's a lot of great technologies, of course, like PCR, lenses, things like that. But I think it's just right for kind of a new way of thinking about it fundamentally. So initially, not even thinking about a specific technology, but just other different ways of thinking about diagnostics that could really enable kind of new modes and new ways of accessing that kind of molecular information, whether that's at home or in the hospital or in the doctor's office. So originally, actually, Mammoth as it is today was founded as a company called Ophelia by myself and another PhD from Stanford, uh, Ashley Taranchi, just with this kind of general thesis that there's got to be a better, more accessible, and more democratized way of accessing uh, molecular information in the form of diagnostics. So we uh, initially kind of founded it with that thesis. And around the same time, interestingly enough, uh, Jennifer Dalton's lab over at Berkeley had made these huge advances in developing these CRISPR tools as something that could be used as a diagnostic. So when we saw these papers, we were really, like, really excited because it really fit that thesis that we had and it was really great time we said they were developing these tools. So we reached out to uh, Jennifer in her lab and the two at the time graduate students who were there working on these systems, uh, Lucas Harrington and Janice Chen, uh, were super entrepreneurial and when we met them we were just blown away by how much their vision aligned with ours and how excited they also were about leveraging these types of systems for creating really awesome diagnostic tests. So we teamed up with them and with Jennifer and that's when we really formed what now you know is Mammoth Biosciences. So the co-founding team now is five people. And uh, that's when we really hit the ground running in terms of developing these systems that we're excited about today. So when did the original company get started? And when did you guys kind of change direction into the company you are now? Well, it's not ancient history. That was just last year, like 2017. Yeah. <laughs> the company's done no matter how you like it. For sure, we're just, uh, you know, 
the CRISPR field is like very exciting and moving very quickly, and we're excited to be at the forefront of that. So that's why I think it's, yeah, are always exciting in our field. Yeah, I think, I mean, CRISPR is most probably well known for its ability to very specifically, precisely, and relatively easily edit certain DNA sequences, right? But it's um, that's not yeah. all, that, all it can do. So your company, I think, is pretty unique in that you focus in one, like in other areas that um, this technology can be used, other applications for it, but sort of non non editing applications of CRISPR. So can you can you tell us a little bit more about the work you're you're doing at your company and the ways you're using CRISPR um, to sort of take the technology into new areas? Yeah, that's a great point. And I think one of the things that makes us really excited about what we're doing at Mammoth is that we see it as a really fundamental shift in the thinking about what CRISPR is. Because as you mentioned, usually when people think about CRISPR, you think about it as a gene editing tool. And it is an amazing gene editing tool, right? That's not like a bad thing to think about it as because it is a shockingly great tool. But really, when we took a step back and we started evaluating kind of what CRISPR is and what it means, we started really thinking about rather than CRISPR being kind of control X, thinking about it as control F. Because there's a lot of ways to cut nucleic acids, but one of the real powers of CRISPR is being able to find specific sequences. And of course, then you can cut them or do other things, but really that kind of search functionality. So we really think of CRISPR fundamentally as kind of a search engine for biology, as like Google for biology, rather than kind of necessarily like a word processing tool, although it's really good at that too. We just kind of take this different perspective on it as something that can be used to search and find things, and you can do lots of cool stuff with it once you find, but then really the power there is being able to locate very specific items. So that's kind of how we think about it. So when you take that kind of fundamental way of viewing CRISPR and then you start thinking about application areas, then at least for us, it becomes really obvious that diagnostics is a very exciting area, right? because that's fundamentally a search problem. And that is something that CRISPR is really great at. So we've been leveraging these proteins to build exactly that diagnostic tools that can be programmed in the same way that you program a CRISPR protein to edit something. But now instead of editing it, you can program it to find something and then to tell you that result. Whether that's uh, infectious disease, so you have some sort of sequence that's like specific to like malaria or tuberculosis, or maybe even like a specific step to so care about what the uh, genotype is that some locus in the genome. That's kind of the way that we view CRISPR at Right, that's actually really interesting. And I think that many people who are not completely familiar with CRISPR uh, probably still think of CRISPR as, you know, CRISPR-Cas9 because Cas9 has played such a main role in the CRISPR system that we tend to forget that there are so many other nucleases out there. And one thing I found really interesting is that your whole diagnostic platform, it's based on uh, two different nucleases other than Cas9, right? So could you just tell briefly yeah. how your how the diagnosis would work if you have a sample and then what your kit would do? Yeah, so the two kind of headliner proteins right now are Cas12 and Cas13. So Cas12 for searching through DNA and Cas13 for RNA. Um, and the way it works in terms of mechanism is very similar to how you think about it for gene editing. So you have the protein itself, and you kind of program it. We use that term a lot. But what that means is that you create a guide RNA, so it's an RNA molecule, that's specific to the thing that you want the protein to uh, locate and find. So let's run with the example of, say, tuberculosis. 
you link tuberculosis genome and you say there's some specific sequence that's found in that species that you're not going to typically find in other kind of contaminating species or in the human genome. Uh, so you can design a guide sequence that will only target something in tuberculosis. So then what you do is you create that, you combine it with the proteins, and now the protein's kind of programmed. And then what you can do is that if you have some sample that's like blood or spit or urine, depending on the disease, you can take that, do some sample prep. So figuring out, you know, maybe you need to license them some cells to get access to the uh, nucleic acids, or maybe you don't in many cases, uh, whatever the steps are. And then you combine it with the CRISPR system, so with the guide and the protein. And you can also combine this with various other kind of like isothermal methods like we did in uh, the science paper that we published earlier this year. And what that does is that when the CRISPR protein that's been programmed with this guide finds the target, so let's say there was tuberculosis present in the sample, it's going to bind to it. And then the typical thing that we'll do is it'll, you know, cut it. And that cutting can normally lead to editing. That's kind of like a cyst cutting. But what's really cool is that the particular proteins that we use also have what we call this like trans or collateral cutting activity. So kind of conditional on having found their targets, having found tuberculosis, they'll actually do all this extra cutting of just molecules in the solution that aren't the target necessarily. And what we can do with that is we can leverage that as two things. Uh, one is a, like an amplification. So you go from, say, detecting a single molecule to cutting lots of molecules. And then the second part is you use that as a readout. So we can put these little reporter molecules in the solution that say when those reporter molecules are cut through that collateral activity, they light up so that you can read it through, like, for example, fluorescence. So that's kind of what's going on at a molecular level. Right. So basically what you have is recognizing the target is same as how it happens in a regular CRISPR system. But then because these nucleases also cut single-stranded DNA and RNA, even without sequence complementarity, you can amplify the signal, right? Yeah. Conditional on it having found its target. And that's the key part. It's like, it's a readout from that search functionality as we think about it. Right. Perfect. You kind of mentioned this previously, but a lot of the current diagnostic tests are using old technology, like not necessarily bad technology, but old, you know, 30 years old or, or more. What current challenges exist in using that kind of technology um, in tests um, these days? And how do you think you're, you, with, with your new technology, you're able to address those? That's a great question. So you like to mention a lot of these technologies are really great. I mean, there's a reason they've been in use for a long time. But there's also a lot of ways that they can be improved. And I think one of the core ones that we think about Mammoth is really the accessibility and how democratized they are. So it really goes back to are these technologies that you kind of have to go to the doctor's office or you have to wait a long time, maybe there's a long turnaround time to get the result, or maybe they're very expensive. And these are all things that we want to help solve with our technology. Because it's pretty shocking, like when you get to the medical field and you kind of look at how things operate, in many cases, it's almost, it's almost like it's this, when you went to Google and you opened kind of the back door, there's like an ENIAC supercomputer running in the back. It's just there's, you know, a lot of kind of barriers to getting molecular information that I don't think necessarily have to be there technologically. So that's one aspect of it is kind of democratizing access to really accurate molecular information by leveraging technologies that don't require as expensive equipment or don't require as much trained technician work to get the result. Uh, So that's 
that's one aspect. And the other aspect is that uh, we're really excited about the potential of CRISPR systems to also just have extremely high accuracy, even relative to current systems, whether that's for detecting like rare diseases or other things, just really leveraging the power of that search functionality of the CRISPR protein to get really, really sensitive and specific results. And this doesn't mean that it has to be one or the other. I think that's a really important point, is that actually we're really excited about the potential to combine CRISPR systems with existing systems to leverage both of the strengths from both, uh, from all these different technologies. I and mean, there's a lot of exciting ways we're thinking about doing that as well. One, I guess one other uh, kind of unique area in some ways is that with some other tests like ELISA's, you, you mentioned they focus on the, the proteins that, that are being made by, you know, like by cells or by, you know, in, uh, infectious agent. Your tests um, focus on um, the DNA or RNA. So are there some advantages to that approach? I mean, there's advantages to looking at all these different molecules. I think the key thing there that we're excited about is that there's been, and especially a lot of development, I think, on kind of antibodies and like ways to check some of these proteins, but molecular methods for like DNA and RNA have been a little bit less accessible we've seen over time. So we really want to make detection of DNA and RNA in a sensitive and specific manner really democratize that and make that something that's not locked behind lots of either financial doors or lots of kind of like hoops that you have to go through either as a doctor or a patient to actually get those results that are relevant. So yeah, I think there it really comes down to that democratization aspect and really making sure that if that's information that's critical to treatment, that it can be accessed in a way that's more open and reasonable. Right. And so one interesting point is that CRISPR applications have been like in the past few years long expected and especially in healthcare people have been hoping to have crispr based trials which are now starting after a lot of after going through a lot of uh, regulation issues right so and the same in agriculture do you think that regulations for diagnostics would be easier so it's not a matter of easier it's just a different path and i think you know as a society obviously we've decided that it's very important to us for good reason right to have these regulatory processes that really make sure that something is very safe before it's actually used in a clinical setting. And for therapeutics, there's one path, and then for diagnostics, there's another. And we're actually really excited to go down that regulatory path because we're very excited to prove our technology and to show that we really can give extremely accurate and extremely clinically relevant results. So actually, we fully embrace that regulatory process. And to your point, it is different, and it is on a different timescale typically than stuff on the therapeutic side. And I think that uh, can be exciting to get products into consumers' hands as quickly as possible. So we are working towards making sure that we are leveraging our technology and really bringing it into the clinic in a responsible way as fast as possible. Right, yeah, no, that makes sense. Safety is absolutely the main reason why we have all these regulations in place. But then thinking of any kind of rather, say, home test for diagnosis, do you think there's going to be a downside to that in the sense any kind of false positives or any panic based on, you know, results which you see at home without having an expert to interpret them for you? Or do you have you thought about that side already? That's a great question, and we don't want these diagnostics to live in a vacuum. Really, our goal at Mammoth is for these to be an integrated part of your entire of the entire care system, right? 
And that's why we're excited as part of, for example, our efforts on the kind of home care side to really integrate these tightly with the existing care structures, whether that's uh, telemedicine so that you can connect with uh, a trusted doctor, whether that's connecting you to physical locations that can then maybe prescribe a therapeutic that you can pick up. So yeah, it's really, to your point, we're definitely very interested in making sure that this is information that is actually clinically useful and making sure that this is information where it's a very clear next step. And it, it's not any kind of ambiguity around, oh, like, what does this result mean? Uh, we want to make sure that we're, like, kind of providing diagnostic results in our eyes is only kind of half of the equation. The other half is making sure that it's very clear what actions or non-actions should be taken because of that, especially in, like, a home environment. So you kind of made it pretty clear, I think one of your main missions is to empower people to take a larger part like, in their healthcare, right? Which means like they can, they can more easily access clinical tests. How do you envision it actually working? Like would these tests be sort of like ordered by a doctor and then shipped to individuals or, or would it be maybe even easier? Like you can just over the counter, you can you know, stop by Target and buy a test to see if you have influenza or TB or, or anything else. So that's really going to depend on the indication, but definitely our long-term vision is that you could go to like a Walgreens or a CBS or a Walmart or any of your kind of neighborhood locations where you might pick up these types of items and get an off-the-shelf test for some diseases, whether that's, uh, you know, some sort of like respiratory thing or some sort of like other disease. I think that's still to be determined in terms of like what's most useful at home. But really, that is the long-term goal, is that for things where that is actually actionable and there actually makes sense clinically, uh, there would be accessibility and democratization of the access to that molecular information. Sort of along those lines, like I think it's still being like worked out which tests would be, would be available at that, but can you speculate maybe on how far away you think we are from having these CRISPR-based tests like, available to acquire over-the-counter? Yeah, so, I mean, that part, we're definitely excited about living there as quickly as possible. I think, you know, it's premature to put, like, an exact timeline on when kind of that type of accessibility will be available. But that's definitely kind of our vision for where this is headed. And I think that it's something that's possible in, like, you know, the near future timelines, whether that's, you know, it's not something that's, like, 10 years away, in my opinion. But I don't think that it's prudent to put, you know, necessarily like, oh, it's like a three years away thing or something. Uh, I think that there's definitely work to be done there. And it's definitely uh, something we're super excited about and we're moving towards that direction every day. One other thing I don't think we we really, we touched on yet is that this, the test might be read out using sort of like an app on a smartphone. Can you talk Mm -hmm. more about how how that part of it will work? So there's a lot of different ways, depending on the indication that you might uh, kind of leverage this type of testing. But there we are pretty excited about the potential of leveraging this kind of supercomputer that everyone has in their pocket, right? As a tool that could actually be used in the diagnostic realm. And what's exciting about that is that that means that it's even more accessible, right? Because you don't need to buy some sort of reader that's specifically for diagnostics only. It's just leveraging a reader and a computer that's in your pocket to give you molecular information. So I think there it really comes down to the accessibility and we're excited to leverage that kind of existing infrastructure related in your home and in your pocket to deliver these results. 
kind of more specifically, how, how would it work? Would it be like you take a picture of the test? So maybe even start by telling us a little bit more about how it works. I understand it's like a small kind of like credit card sized, essentially like a piece of paper that is the test. And then would you like take a picture of it and then an app reads out the signal? So our vision for how it would work is that one format could be this kind of paper-based version. You can also imagine, you know, a lot of different other formats, but I think if we run with the kind of the paper-based format, yeah, it would be as simple as like taking a picture from reading out the result. And that can help you standardize things to make sure that you're reading it correctly. Uh, it can also make sure that you're connecting that result with, uh, say, your submission so that they can get that data and they can help you think through next steps. So it kind of serves two purposes. One is making sure that you read the result in a very standardized way, and the second one is making sure that you're connected to the rest of the chain of care and getting the right information at the next step. Okay, yeah, interesting. So we've, we've talked mostly about its application in healthcare, but technology is not, not limited to, to that space. Um, can you tell us a little mm -hmm. bit more about other areas you think you might be able to impact? Yeah, I mean, that's the other exciting part is that there's just so many areas in our lives and in society that really rely on diagnostics when you get down to it. Whether that in the healthcare is one that personally matters to us a lot and is very personally meaningful. But kind of outside of that, you can imagine things in agriculture, even forensics and industry, looking at you know various uh, kind of uh, factories, kind of water pipelines, pollution related items, and then of course. I think even more broadly, when we talk about healthcare, usually we're talking about the United States, but I think this technology could be incredibly impactful in the developing world in countries that really don't have much access at all to this type of molecular information. I mean, I think that's just like going to be incredibly transformative to be able to get these tools in the hands of people that maybe didn't have any access. So. Right. Now, I think the, this tool is in general really useful for diagnostics and in many other purposes, as you said. And it's interesting to consider that CRISPR was basically just came out about five years ago and it has already reached this level. So could you just speculate what do you think would be the CRISPR scenario in after five years from now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, tough, right? Because uh, it's probably going to exceed what expectations put on it. So yeah, I think five years from now, I would really hope that we're at a place where there's the diagnostic and therapeutic uses of CRISPR that are actually helping people all day to day. I think that would be super transformative in terms of having a healthcare system that serves people better, uh, being able to have people live healthier and longer lives. So that's kind of the base level of what I would hope would be accomplished. Beyond that though, I think we're gonna find more and more interesting uses that we haven't even thought of, right? Like I think people wouldn't have expected that you could use CRISPR proteins in this way uh, for diagnostics, right? Like that came out of nowhere when Jennifer's lab uh, invented this. And I think there'll be further inventions like that where it's just like, wow, I had no idea that CRISPR could be used for that. And I think that's what's exciting about the field. And that's why at Mammoth, we really kind of broadened our thinking about CRISPR to be CRISPR as search engine, not necessarily like CRISPR as editor, CRISPR as some sort of readout, but really CRISPR as biology's Google. And that's why we're, you know, don't want to circumscribe CRISPR to just, you know, this one application or the other, because I think it really has potential in many, many areas. 
Right. Okay. And uh, so one fun question in the end, which I've been very curious about myself is, <laughs> how did you settle on the name Mammoth? Yeah, I wish I had a better answer than I do. So originally we were called Ophelia. That was, I think, it was like Greek goddess of simplicity and medicine or something like that. So look it up. But that name is pretty hard to spell. <laughs> I don't know if you want to try spelling it right now. Maybe you're better at spelling that. But it's a rough, rough one to try and spell or like have it easy to type URL. So we needed to change the name. And it's funny, one of our original investors in FX. So they invested in us initially and one of the first things I told them, we've got to change the name. <laughs> this name is just not going to work. <laughs> they rated the name like a one or two out of ten on their little scale. So we were like, okay, we're going to change the name. We started brainstorming, came up with like huge lists of names, buck stuff. I think Ashley had this idea that oh, it was like animals and then mammoth was one of them. And I don't know, we just looked at it and we were like, yeah, like that, that makes sense. Uh, and of course, you can like, you know, think about it. It's like a very large animal, like, you know, the elephant in the room that you can't ignore, but it's the man, <laughs> even more unignorable. Also, it fits well with Jennifer's, you know, other you know, character. <laughs> it's got a bit of a oh, on there. And also, you know, a bit of a cheeky play on this idea of like Chris Green's animals. Uh, so it works on a lot of levels. It works. Mammoths are really cool. Yeah, Yeah, no, absolutely. I was wondering if there was any connection to the fact that, you know, after based on the project of trying to bring back the woolly mammoth or something, that maybe you thought, yeah, that's like the huge potential (laughs) of CRISPR. Let's. Yeah, very good. There's another CRISPR application. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So. Thank you for this great interview. And just in case anyone wants to get in touch with you with further questions, what would be the best way to contact you? Yeah, absolutely. So my email is Trevor, T-R-E-Z-O-R, at mammoth.io. That's probably the easiest way. You can also find me on uh, Twitter at martintrevor underscore. Thanks for listening to CRISPR Cuts. I invite you to check out the Synthigo blog, The Bench, for more great CRISPR content. Please send us any feedback you have by contacting us on Twitter. And if you want to join in as a guest on our podcast, email us at crispercuts at synthigo.com. CRISPR Cuts is a scientific podcast by Synthigo. Produced by Kevin, Minu, and me, Bobby. Additional production by Resonate Recordings. Our cover art is by Jeff Merrick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.